0: The God of Atheists by Stefan Molyneux. www.freedomainradio.com, Chapter Forty Two, The Presentation from Hell. The wake-up call came about a thousand years too early. Terry's head jerked around, filled with dry sand, and he grabbed at the receiver, missing twice. The electric voice told him the time down to the second: six fifteen thirty-two. A.M. Pierre groaned in his bed. The thought passed between them. Just a few more minutes. Terry thought of the glaring bathroom. Hotels always lit their bathrooms so brightly that you could check for fractures by holding your hand up to the mirror and shuddered. To burrow under the covers to sleep. The phone rang again. Dave. When you shower, hang your suits in the bathroom. They'll straighten a bit. I've called for an iron for you guys, just in case. Meet you in the lobby in twenty minutes. Oh, fuck, shoot me, said Pierre, flopping over heavily. Terry got out of bed. There was a vertical rainbow of dim dawn between the curtains. It was cold. Time to figure out the taps. It is a strange part of business travel that to maintain proper hygiene you have to become a cryptologist of plumbing for some unknown reason the designer of every hotel on the planet believes that there is a perfect combination of knobs, levers, circular apparatus, and buttons which has not yet been discovered, but which will make choosing your water temperature so much easier. Terry fiddled with a dial, two buttons on the end of the taps, and a plunger before giving up and having a shower that almost made him scream. They had arrived at the hotel at eleven the night before after a long drive. Pierre had ridden in the front to listen to Dave's sex-stories while Terry had worked in the back, hunched over his laptop. "'Not uh, working back there, right, Terry boy?' "'No, just just poking around our website,' said Terry. He had visions of being asked to change the type of a data-field and was hammering out code. After a late drink they got to their room around twelve-thirty a.m., Terry went through the presentation, there was so much to demo, and realized no reports could be previewed because they had reinstalled the operating system but had forgotten to install the printer driver. So he had to get on the internet, which meant setting up his dial-up configuration and then finding and downloading and installing a printer driver. That took until 1.30am. Then, when he opened the database builder, he realized that he left test fields FUBAR1 through FUBAR9 in the database, so he had to delete them, then refresh the Database builder data dictionary two thirty AM Then he ran through some of his sample filters but no data came back. Where the hell is the sample data? He realized he'd tried to delete some fields using the database builder, so had to put them back in manually. Then he entered some data so his filters would work properly. three thirty AM Terry tested the calendar calculator functions if you double clicked on a date field, you got a calendar, a number field. Edel did a calculator. When he double-clicked, the computer froze. He waited, then rebooted, tried again. Same thing. I could skip this, but Dave always says, "'Show them what happens when you double-click. You're going to love this.' He checked for the little program that ran the calendar and the calculator. It was there, in the right place. Then he remembered that he hadn't told the operating system where it was and what it did. He registered it, then tried again. Good. Good. Everything works." 4.30 a.m. Terry ran through a bit more, then a little part of his brain said, quite distinctly, "'Fuck it,' and he went to bed. Under the covers he worried about the next day's presentation, it took him almost half an hour to go to sleep. He was about to get up and run through it again when he plummeted into the black sea of slumber for just over an hour. They met Dave in the lobby and then started on the Odyssey of Client Location— one constant of business travel is that you're lost almost all the time. A new city, cryptic directions from the internet, time pressure, cell phones that don't work, inconsistent road signs, missing turnoffs, construction. The internet gives you the kind of directions that rain man would be proud of. An ordinary human being would say, go west 10 blocks, then south 10. The internet, on the other hand, says, go west for one block, 0.2 minutes, then south 1.19 minutes, then west one block. They got lost and. Dave's face turned purple. He tried his cell phone. Nothing. "'I don't even know why they bother,' he said, hurling the phone into the back seat. "'Fucking rip-off. Might as well be two yoghurt cups and a piece of fucking string. City Corps has two other vendors this morning. Every minute we're late is one less minute to present. And don't we look like a fucking amateur dog-and-pony show. We'd just love to build your software architecture, Mr. 14100, but fuck me, we just couldn't find your offices. Yuck, yuck!' This bitter tirade went on until they spied the street. They entered the mothership of parking garages and finally found a spot about twelve levels down. After signing in at the front desk, they were met by a jovial, middle-aged man in white shirt-sleeves and suspenders. So, you made it, he grinned, shaking their hands. Stan Jenkins. Stan, good to meet you, boomed Dave. This is Terry Coleman and Pierre Laurent, part of our technical team. They'll be doing the part of the presentation that puts all the non-technical people into a coma, he laughed come on through. We're a little late, so I'll have to round up some of the troops. Do you want a coffee? And how? said Terry. It's in here, said Stan, opening a double door. It was a long conference room with a UFO-shaped speakerphone in the middle of the table. Three people sat around, chatting. Make yourselves at home, said Stan. I'll be back in a few minutes. Terry started setting up the notebook. Dave introduced them to the people around the table. Pierre started unpacking the overhead projector. Dang muttered Terry, the notebook's power cord did not reach to the wall plug. He looked under the table, hoping to find an outlet. "'Can't reach the power cord?' asked a fair-haired woman. "'No, it's uh, it's a bit too far.' "'It's only an hour presentation,' said Dave. "'Let's just use the battery.' "'I don't know if we have enough juice,' said Terry. "'Do you guys have any extension cords lying around?' asked Dave. A squat man offered to go and look for one. "'Terry!' hissed Pierre. "'What? Can't find the VGA cord?' "'Terry's heart.' froze. Software demonstrations are projected, like a movie, onto a wall. To do this, a VGA cord is needed to link the notebook to the overhead projector. Without it, there is no way to show the software without everyone cramming around the tiny notebook screen, which is generally considered to be suicidally bad form. "'Not good,' muttered Terry, double plus ungood. He rooted around in the thousand or so pockets of the projector case. "'Could it be in the car?' whispered Pierre. Terry felt a flash of rage. Of course not. Where the fuck could it be? Stan came back into the room. Coffee all around, he said, and I found the rest of the crew. A dozen or so people shuffled in. Introductions abounded. Are we ready? asked Dave. Terry swallowed. I left a cord in the car. Can I, ha- can I have the keys for a sec? Sure, said Dave, his cheeks coloring slightly. Pierre will talk about the architecture while I'm gone, said Terry, grabbing the keys and gracing the room with a sickly smile. He left the room. Oh, God, oh, God, he thought. What the fuck am I going to do now? He thought of going to check the car, but there'd be no reason why it would be there. That option was thoroughly depressing, like mechanically searching somewhere for the tenth time. He had a kind of inspiration, the kind that may be a good idea, or might just be a way of manufacturing action in the absence of hope. He went down to the lobby and walked up to the security guard. Is, is there a software store around here? The guard paused. A toothpick levered its way from one side of his mouth to the other. Well, there's a can't be centre in the mall, two blocks north, but they don't open till nine. Terry glanced at his watch. Eight sixteen. Nothing else? Nope. Terry took a step back from the desk, his vision squeezing. I'd pay five thou for a cord right now. Work, work it off somehow. He thought of Dave and Pierre upstairs. What the fuck am I gonna do? He wandered out into the street, a cab was disgorging a large, admin-type woman. He ran up. "'Do you know any computer stores around here?' The cabbie frowned. "'What? Open at this hour? Sorry, man. "'Can you take me to the mall two blocks north?' "'Sometimes they're there early,' the cabby nodded, and Terry hopped in. "'I'll double your fare if you get me there and back in fifteen minutes.' The cab lurched forward, and Terry's feet almost hit the roof. At the mall, Terry leaped out and ran inside. The store was locked glass next to a pet store. Terry ran up and shielded his eyes. No movement inside. The store's name rippled across a sea of monitors. 821. Terry saw a man walking towards him from far up the mall. He was bald, portly, with a thick gray beard and suspenders. Geek! Terry ran up to him. Excuse me, do, do, do you run the Compu Center? he asked. The man shook his head. Nope. Terry frowned, then realized the man was a eunuch's freak and so loved twisty logic. But you work there. The man nodded, scraps of cinnamon bun in his beard. "'Sure.' "'Listen, I really, really need your help. I'm doing a software presentation at a few streets over, and I don't have a VGA cord.' "'Store opens at nine. "'I know, but I'll, I'll, I'll pay double for a cord. They're waiting for me now.' The man grinned. His teeth were ringed with yellow, like an old wolf's. "'Ah, the entrepreneurial life. I get out of it when gooey's came along. They attract amateurs.' Terry swallowed dryly. Will, "'Will you
1: help me?'
0: "'Yeah, sure.' he said. Can, can, can we walk a little faster? I hate to be a failure to plan on your part. It does not constitute an emergency on my part, quoted the man, and seemed to slow down slightly. They got into the store, found the cord. Terry paid and ran outside. The cab was waiting. 8.31. Please get me, get me back quick, panted Terry. He was bathed in sweat and felt like throwing up. His hands were wet, clenched around the plastic bag. He forced them to open slightly. When the cab pulled up, Terry got into a vicious argument because the fare was $10 and he had only $15 and had promised double. Finally, he, he just he just ran away. When he got back into the conference room, he saw that Pierre had filled two whiteboards with network diagrams, database and server specifications, bandwidth estimates, and Dave's face was almost purple. Are you Are you okay? "'I stand, staring at Terry's sweaty face. "'Sorry,' said Terry. "'Couldn't find the car.' "'Did you go to Center? "'asked a thin man snidely, "'looking up from a computer magazine. "'Terry looked down at his hand clutching the bag. "'No, no, we, we bought this last night,' "'he said, thinking, "'Man, why are corporate tech guys such assholes?' "'Terry took a deep breath "'and started doing the presentation. "'Things were going quite well. "'He stretched out his feet, under the desk, relaxing a little. Beep! Beep! What the— Terry's eyes danced around, confused. Then he saw the flashing light on his notebook. Low battery! He glanced down and saw that by stretching his legs he had kicked the power cord out of the wall. Lord God, I must have plugged the notebook into a dead outlet last night at the hotel and worked the whole time on battery. Everything seemed to slow down. In his mind he heard the groaning horror of a slowed-down No! He ducked forward, banging his head against the table, groping for the cord. His chair would not go back. It was right against the wall. He couldn't get under the table. He humped his back up, and the table tilted forward. From the other side, he must have looked like some burrowing animal. Just as he grabbed the power cord, he heard the soft click and slowing of his computer, giving up the ghost. He closed his eyes for a moment, then put the plug in slowly, levering himself back out from under the table. He stood up. "'Why don't we take um, five minutes while I reboot?' he said. The power cord came out. "'You should try a lithium-iron battery,' smirked the thin man. "'No ghosting.' "'Thanks. Y- y- yes, we will,' said Terry. "'Rebooting shouldn't take long,' said Dave. "'Let's press on.' "'I need a bio-break,' said Terry. "'Sure,' said Stan sympathetically. Five minutes.' The group rose and mingled. The thin guy came over to Terry. "'That sudden power-off kind of been good for the database,' he smiled. "'It was true. Access databases in particular didn't do well if power is lost suddenly.' "'Should be okay,' said Terry, thinking. "'Go away! Go away!' "'What is that, a, a Eurocom?' asked the man, leaning forward. "'Never heard of them.' "'It's a Canadian company,' said Terry, logging on to the computer. "'How can I get rid of him? Ask him to get me a coffee. No, 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 he'd be offended.' Fortunately, Pierre came to the rescue. Hey, he said to the thin man, Is it Linux or Linux? The man turned. Everyone thinks Linux, because the guy's name is Linus, but it's really... Terry ran. Access then opened the database. There was a pause. The hourglass flickered. His horror mounted. Then the message box. This is not a database file or needs to be repaired. Do you want Access to try repairing it now? "'Of course!' thought Terry, feverishly, praying to the dark gods in Redmond. "'Why is that even an option?' He clicked yes. The disk drive thrashed. A pause, then. "'Access could not repair this database file. Please choose another.'
1: "'Oh, sweet evil gods!'
0: thought Terry. His fingers flickered to the keyboard, looking for a backup. "'Nothing. Oh, that was smart!' The group was coming back into the room. We have another 15 minutes, said Dave. We're going to power through one of the remaining features, then leave a few minutes for questions. Any response so far? The thin man laughed. The little I saw looked pretty good. Terry pulled out his last ace. There is a little-known command you can run access with called decompile. It rewrites the entire database from scratch to a new file and can sometimes recover even dead databases. He tried it. The blue status line started its slow, nomadic crawl. Everyone looked at him. We're ready, Terry, prompted Dave. Just just a moment, said Terry, staring at the status line. Nineteen per cent.
1: Slow fucking piece of shit, machine!
0: Twenty-two per cent. The normal value-add of this product is one hundred thousand dollars, said Dave, leaning forward suddenly, but we are having a promotion at the moment, and if you make a purchasing commitment in the next two weeks, we are prepared to offer it to you at a discount of fifty per cent. That represents a substantial reduction, which we are doing because we want to establish a foothold in your vertical market." Stan looked at Dave for a moment, then laughed, glancing down at Dave's card. "Mr. Bugle, we are looking for a long-term partnership, not an offer from a used car salesman." The status bar leapt forward, and the system paused, the hard drive thrashed, and then the database's splash screen popped up, and Terry willed the urine back into his bladder. Okay, we're we're back from the dead, he said, switching the view back to the overhead projector. Seems to be running a bit slower, said the thin man. We got decompiled in the crash, said Terry, but, but we're okay now. He ran through some of the remaining features, but was quite distracted by the time crunch and the growing reservoir of coffee sitting over his groin. When the meeting was dispersing, the thin man came up to him. Quite a show, he said. Well, admitted Terry, that... That was one of our more exciting ones. Across the room, Dave stared at him, then slowly drew a finger across his neck. Chapter 43 Alder and Joanne at Night Joanne shifted back on her ass. Come on, ten years of marriage, it's not a goddamn nomad. Alder's tongue worked around her clitoris. She tried guiding his head with her hands. She wanted to... "'grab his jug ears and just move him to the right spot, "'but was trapped in moaning limbo. "'I have to moan enough to encourage him, "'but not so much that he stops looking for the right spot. "'She tried to still her hips. "'This was a constant source of tension. "'Through strange joking, he had let her know "'that just finding her clitoris was hard enough. "'Keeping track of it, while her hips rolled and sank, "'was like trying to catch a leaf in a hurricane. "'Quite frustrating. "'His tongue found the spot, her hips jerked involuntarily, "'and he skidded off. "'God! damn it! She tried fantasy briefly, the lean-hipped young man in her bookstore who had asked her for her pen and sucked it. Mm, Not bad, not bad. She imagined the boy's tousled blonde hair over Alder's thinning black. Sometimes when she looked at her husband's balding head between her thighs, she thought of an enormous penis. If he wore a beige turtleneck, it would be eerie. The fantasy was not taking hold. She, She couldn't find the "'connecting moment where borrowing a pen "'led the blonde man to finding the spot "'and following it perfectly through her hip-storms. "'We have some vintage Baudelaire in the back. "'Wait, sucking on the pen is the connecting moment. "'He takes me right on the counter among the hard-covers. "'Wait, he had to have a fetish that she satisfied, "'a thing for back-freckles, perhaps, or sunken nipples, "'which left him helpless before her sexual power.' I don't know why I'm feeling this way, Joanne. Okay, th- this is not working at all, she thought, and suddenly imagined Stephen at the doorway. Daddy's trying to get back inside, Mommy! Oh, yeah, that's erotic. Are you okay? asked Alder, pausing between each word to continue licking. Yeah, let me do you now, she said, shimming away from his lost little tongue and preparing herself for the great coaxing Ah, the middle-aged man's erection, she thought, the endless seduction. She knelt beside the bed and licked the length of his penis. Oh, I remember when he picked me up on a date, already hard. Oh, those days of uncomplicated coaxing. Draw breath, be vaguely available, dab a little perfume, and he's hard enough to show head through new jeans. Now, sometimes she felt like a boater with an uncertain outboard engine. Prime, pull, adjust, pull, tinker, prime. Pull, and even when it was coaxed into life, sometimes it just fell dead again, like a like a heart failing under a defibrillator. It would take a team, she thought, drawing him into her mouth, trying to suck some productive blood her way. One woman to whisper his studliness into his ear, another to toy with his nipple, another to tickle his balls, another to make porn noises. Sometimes she had to suck him for a minute or more to get a semi-erection, a demi-erection. "'she called it, but only to herself, of course. "'And she could feel his concentration, his straining, "'and she would glance up, nervously afraid he was watching, "'and wonder what was going on behind his tightly furrowed brow. "'Is he trying to connect with the long-lost ghost of his teenage sex drive? "'The days when he never thought he would get any, "'and masturbated, by all accounts, two, three times a day? "'What happened? "'We should know each other better by now. "'I've read of couples who claim sex in their sixties is better.' and sex in their twenties. What's up with that? She tried flicking her tongue along the bottom of his cockhead. More than what's up with this? He groaned, but she couldn't tell if it was from pleasure or strain. Okay, I'll make you a deal. You get a proper erection, I give you full permission to fantasize about my friend Kate or some cartoon chick in thigh-high leather boots with zero-gravity tits. This flaccid she could get the whole thing in. She sucked hard while moving her head back, giving up on seduction and trying physics. It needs blood, we bring it blood. Do they ever wonder about biting? she wondered. I would, I mean, I mean, I would worry about him biting my clit if he knew where it was. This thought almost made her laugh. However, she knew better than to giggle when he was having trouble getting hard. This turned her from sexual wife into some sort of Kathleen Turner hard bitchy woman who loved nothing more than to mock men for their inadequacies. Not a pretty scene, she well knew. She balanced herself on her knees, tough on the shoulders, and tried pulling on his shaft while tickling his balls. Sometimes this combination cracks the safe, Inspector. There was a brief stirring, she glanced up surreptitiously. He was sweating. Why on earth do we really do this? The last uncomplicated sex we had was probably... The thought trailed off and she lost her rhythm. Holy shit, the first time? What was that like? Easy, yeah, easy, I remember. He fucked like a teenage monkey. Things were moving along. She hummed along the length of his cock, always imagining being a flutist. For this evening's performance, I would like to play Flesh Flute by Hugh G. Rection. "'I think you will find the climax most stirring. "'Those in the front rows might want to open their umbrellas "'for the final movement.' "'But the climaxes were always good. "'They had to be chased furtively like shy deer, "'but when they were brought down, oh, God, that was sweet. "'She could always tell when he was going to come. "'His cock stiffened, his balls hardened, nothing could stop them. "'Here comes the countdown, enter the salt!' "'Her orgasms, though, were so easily distracted. "'They seemed to have some sort of attention-deficit disorder.' A car alarm, a phone call, a minute change in rhythm, and they were gone, vanished, evaporated without even a trace. This would always exasperate her. It was like losing your keys when running late. I search, then forget my destination. And there was so much that had changed. Alderscock was like a fussy customer. More pressure, less pressure, more hand, less hand, faster, slower, steady pace, change pace. It was like one of those heavy printed maze games she played when she was a child. Start with a pencil. Try this route. No. Dead end. K. Turn around. Try this route. No. Turn. Try. She tried countless combinations to keep him hard, to, to move him forward, and she listened hard to his noises. She became like a bat trapped in a bell tower, navigating entirely by sound and feel. Dang, I wish I'd remembered to put music on. She was always surprised that the music she listened to while having sex never turned her on later. There seemed to be like no associations. Now all she had to do was figure out where they were going to go next. If he came in her mouth, she would remain completely unsatisfied. He would offer to lick her again, but the energy would be gone. If he came inside her, she would be a little more satisfied. She wouldn't come, of course. She only came with him inside maybe twice and once when she was playing with her own clit. But there would be a satisfying kind of biological end to the old thing, at least. The problem, though, was the great leap. This was the transition from mouth to pussy, and it was not to be attempted lightly. It had to be completed quickly enough for him to keep his erection. This had become completely impossible during the condom phase of their relationship. There was just no way to get the condom on without him losing it, and then she was reduced to trying to get him erect in a condom, which was like trying to massage a man in a suit of armor. Okay, I think we can try to make the great leap now, she thought, standing quickly "'It had to be fast enough that he didn't lose his erection, but not so fast that she startled him. "'She lay back on the bed. She knew better than to try mounting him. "'He almost never kept his erection when she was on top. "'What felt good for her was, apparently, not good for him, "'and she would end up trying to wring her orgasm from a fading erection. "'The gas station is in sight! Do we have enough?' "'Too stressful by far. If she missed, or he faded completely, "'he would sense her disappointment, and there would be no more sex. "'His erection would be lost beyond reclamation.' Alda rolled on top of her. He frowned, groping himself and looking at the pillowcase. He rubbed the head of his penis against her pussy and clit. Sure, I said I liked that once, what, eight years ago? Now, every single time. She felt him pushing against her and the head of his cock slipped in. She gasped. No matter how often, it was always a kind of intense mix of sensations. A longing fulfilled a shocking widening. She looked up at him. He was moving his hand, milking himself. Well— Not quite milking, she thought, trying to get the cow to stand up. Don't laugh. He moved a little more into her, and and he looked down. She lifted her hips so he could see better, knowing that it turned him on. Wish I could get a better view, she thought. We should really have sex in a room of mirrors, like Enter the dragon. I know that I'm supposed to be all intimate and loving and woomy, but I'd love to see that thing fucking me properly. Ooh, does that mean I'd like to see it fucking me properly like a good view, or fucking me properly like a good fuck? Let's just leave that aside for now. He grunted and began moving. She held his shoulders, wishing she had even a little cleavage. She knew that he was a breast man and that he loved the idea of breastrobation or titfucking, but she just didn't have the equipment. They had attempted at once she had tried squeezing her breasts together until her shoulder blades felt about a foot apart, but she couldn't fold enough flesh to wrap him. He was moving fairly well now, straddling the pleasure divide quite nicely. He liked it slow, she liked it fast, and never the twain could meet. He was uncircumcised, and that meant he was easily overstimulated. The hearty pummeling of lopped cocks was not for him. It was for her, though, and she urged, used to urge him faster, but fast turned soft, and, and that was that. So he would go faster, like ten or twenty seconds, and she would feel an electric churning in her spine, And then he would fade, and in the manner of a master tease, go slow, get hard, and start again. It was like Chinese water torture, but better than all slow, which drove her totally insane. He rarely came on top. She knew that he felt that was bad, that she might feel used, that he sentimentalized female sexuality in the manner of all intellectuals who idealize and and dehumanize. He liked to come from behind, she knew, but... What he didn't know was that she liked it from behind. She liked the strange sensation, the whole new pissy that seemed to emerge from that angle. Also, it was sexy in an earthy way to watch his ball swinging against her clit, thinking of them rousing, pumping, draining into her. Aha! The infinite earth goddess steals the essential essence from another helpless male. The best combo. Earth Mother and Porn Star. And it's always Russell Crowe from behind. They had tried porn, but Alder was always scorning the plots and commenting on the cyborg nature of the enhanced actresses, and the men took too long to come, apparently, but they stayed hard the whole time, she thought, watching their pumping cocks with fascination. Alder withdrew from her and sat on his heels, looking at her slightly expectantly. Okay, okay, make like a dog, got it. She turned over and raised her ass in the air. He struck himself a few times, and then slid into her. I wonder if he thinks about going into my ass every time. She had heard a friend talk about anal sex that made her climax quickly, and this had been quite confusing. Does the clit have roots, like a a tree that go into the bowels? She had thought about it. It sounded uncharitable, but Aldous Cock was not exactly the kind of monster that would tear her up inside. But it was creepy, sort of decadent, and seemed a line to be crossed that did not bode well for their intimacy. It would be like... Him dressing me up and calling me Helga, why, why would we need that? He slid into her, and she gasped. He settled in so well. Her pussy over the years seemed to have changed in size to wrap him perfectly. She felt a drop of sweat fall on her buttocks, and it was a lovely little sensation, like listening to a favorite song on great headphones and hearing a new instrument buried deep inside. He sneaked into her. It was different from a full erection. He pushed and slithered, and if she squeezed she could sort of push him out. She turned her head on the sheet to look at him. He was staring down at her ass, his cock, and she wished she could see what he saw. Quite nice, she thought. No orgasm was anywhere near, but this was good nonetheless. Orgasms sort of obliterated her. They were fantastic, but unsettling. It was pleasant to feel him, to feel sex, without losing herself. She reached down to feel his balls. Coming along nicely, she thought, thinking of little muffins in easy-bake ovens. She rolled them along her fingertips, and he groaned. His cock stiffened, and she remembered to moan. A few more thrusts, he shuddered and twitched, and she felt his pounding knead and the little inner flood, and he sank and softened. As he settled into her shoulder, the one time I can cradle him, she thought, she turned to check the time and saw, over the red LED, 1216, her pills, and suddenly she felt mildly uneasy. What is the date today? I'll, I'll check the dispenser later. He groaned, and his weight fell, and she shifted under him, looking for air. Chapter 44 The Boy Band Gets Their Song. Al had called them all into his office and was sweating and speaking too loud when he told them the news. Boys, 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 he crowed. Two things. First, we have a song, and second, we have a shot at being on an MTV special in November. He paused for a moment. But, said Gerald, we've been at this for seven months, and we haven't done anything yet. What are you talking about? demanded Al. You were born, you have nice cheekbones. Here's the thing. I showed some video clips to a friend over at MTV, and he borrowed the tape and showed it to his daughters, and they went wild over it. Wild? "'asked Justin slowly, squinting up through dark eyes. "'There is no sound, but you guys look fabulous "'in those faggy little wings, and the, "'and the hellos on your heads are pure genius. "'Genius, genius, genius. "'I think they'll be the Choose Life T-shirts of the noughties.' "'Todd frowned. "'The what? The what?' "'This decade,' said Chris, "'like after the nineties came the noughties.' "'Oh, how very thirties Berlin,' laughed Ian. "'That should be the look for our next video,' said Todd. "'Slicked back hair, high cheekbones,' Top half tucks, bottom half stockings. Perfect, cried Ian. I just shiver with anticipation. Toast hurling toady, Todd shot back. All right, my pretty darklings, said Al. Let's just about put that one on the back burner, shall we? The black burner, interrupted Gerald. For us darklings, Todd rolled his eyes. Man, can't you ever be the strong silent type? Leave him, said Justin, rubbing his face. You look a little worn, sport, said Al, leaning forward. Not sleeping well, he muttered. Chris picked up a binder from Al's desk and flipped through it. Now, according to my script, Al, this is where you get him hooked on pills. Hey, hey, kid, take it easy, said Al. This is supposed to be fun. What's the song? asked Justin. It was emailed to me, said Al, moving his mouse. Some chicken BC, she's new to the game, sings it herself, sounds like Enya on Helium. It's a bit folksy, so try to degranola it in your minds. A woman's voice came through the speakers.
1: "'What you want me to be,' it said, by flower Edition.
0: A trilly guitar melody sounded, and the woman took an impossibly deep breath, and sang,
1: "'I want to be what you want me to be. I want to see what you want me to see. A mirror of every single need, a rose rising through a knotted weed, a single cloud to cool your face. Oxygen when you're lost in space Gravity when you can't come down Peaches when you wear a frown Angels when your darkness grows Kevlar for your body blows I want to be what you want me to be I want to see what you want me to see Whenever you take what you cannot share Whenever you scorn what you cannot bear When you decide to stitch what you always tear, When you fall in faith I will be there Sunblock when the sky beats hot A band-aid when you bleed a lot A bookmark when you lose your place a mask for when you lose your face i want to be what you want me to be i want to see what you want me to see i want to be
0: what you-the song did not quite stop the woman and, and they could all picture her long straight hair a horsey face big teeth seemed to want to do the repeat and fade thing so just played softer and softer and ended up whispering the last verse in a voice of almost pure breath the boys squirmed in delighted embarrassment. After the song ended, Justin laughed incredulously. "'It's pure shit,' he said. "'Kevlar?' Todd whistled. "'My God, I think she did the whole thing on one breath.' Ian smiled. "'Yeah, I can see how the notation goes. Repeat and expire.' "'I think the suits us to a T,' said Alan. "'I'll tell you why. Every girl loves the idea that a pretty boy will do anything for her.' Todd whistled. "'Now that's profound.' It's catchy, said Chris. Yeah, said Gerald. Catchy like herpes. Strong, reminded Todd. Silent. Look, we'll give it a shot, said Al. Uh, When can you guys get into the studio? We're dancing in the video, scowled Justin. How will that fit this molasses? Al shrugged. So we slow it down. We were never going to get a song that matches your rhythm. It's artistic either way. Faint crowd screams and slow dancing is a perfect intro. It looks passionate and says, These boys have paid their hearty dues in unknown lands. "'Sure, but I don't think I can do this one perfectly straight,' said Justin. Al frowned. "'What do you mean? The video is already done,' his eyes glazed over. "'Apprentice Angels. Just think of the movie it would make.' "'Come back, glitter boy,' said Ian. "'We can do it Saturday morning, right, gang?' "'Sure, Spanky,' said Chris, sitting up and clapping his hands. "'Actually,' said Al, "'and here's where the corruption truly begins. "'I would prefer it if we could do it on a weekday. "'Weekend time is fierce money.' "'You want to take me out of school?' asked Chris, doing a possible Elvis. "'Shucks, Colonel. You'll just tell me where to sign.' "'Todd laughed. You ever hear Letterman's take on Elvis's last words? "'Mama? Is there any more mayonnaise?' <coughs> "'How's Friday afternoon?' asked Al. "'I have pep rally practice. Ooh, sorry, that's when the yearbook proofs are due. "'I'm signing up for cheerleader stalking, then.' "'Al held up a hand. So, we're we're good to go, then. Of course. "'Justin?' Justin nodded, staring at the floor. On the bright lawn in front of his house, Ian pulled Justin aside. "'Don't fuck this up, curtsey. "'What do you mean, don't fuck this up?' demanded Justin, settling black ray-bands on his perfect nose. "'This is a joke, remember?' Ian leaned forward towards Justin, his voice low. "'Well, Mr. Howell, for those of us without trust funds the size of Malta shoved up our asses, it's taking on a slightly more serious tone.' Justin paused, then laughed harshly. (laughs) I don't want to appear ungrateful to the toiling masses who keep me aloft, but this is never going to stick. What, we're pretending to write for the World Weekly News? Suddenly we're journalists jonesing for a Pulitzer? MTV, man, said Ian urgently. That just means it's all shit, bovine boy. He cupped his hands around his mouth. Hello, we don't have a song and we're on MTV. Look, if this is how it works, so be it. You don't have to do anything you don't want to, but you signed on to this ride, and now becoming the peevish prima donna before we've even sung in public seems to be putting the cart just a tad before the horse. Let's at least become middling-sized before we self-destruct. Be as predictable as you want, just at the right fucking time. Ian stalked back into his house, slamming the door. Justin watched him go. The terror of being predictable, enveloped his struggling heart and he lowered his head. A little bead of sweat fell onto his Ray-Bans, blurring the complicated grass. Chapter 45 Gordon's Thesis The following Monday Alder was approaching his office and was surprised to see a brown envelope leaning against the door. He picked it up, went into his office, opened it, and saw it's the cover page of a thesis, the title is Worlds Apart, Senseless Ethics and Rational Dictatorship. And there's a quote from Nietzsche, The Dawn, 1881, which goes, Rationality, ex post facto. Whatever lives long is gradually so saturated with reason that its irrational origins become improbable. Does not almost every accurate history, if the origin of something sound paradoxical and sacrilegious to our feelings, doesn't the good historian contradict all the time? And from Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray, he sought to elaborate some new scheme of life that would have its reasoned philosophy and its ordered principles and find, in the spiritualizing of the senses, its highest realization. Introduction. The thesis of this paper is that there are two opposing philosophical positions in Western history. These positions originate in beliefs about reality, beliefs which in turn condition opposing theories of knowledge, ethics, and political theories. The purpose of this paper is to trace the logic of these beliefs, both internally and with reference to four major philosophers, Kant, Hegel, Locke, and Hobbes. The first section of the paper will outline the philosophical reasonings of both positions. The second will show how these beliefs have manifested themselves in Western history. The third will show these paradigms at work in the writing of these four major philosophers. The two approaches are referred to as sensualism and suprasensualism. These terms represent the following philosophical approaches. In metaphysics, sensualism is... Based on objective reality, suprasensualism is based on subjective perception. In epistemology, or the study of knowledge, sensualism bases its true false uh, categories on empirical rationality. Suprasensualism places them within revelation. In ethics, sensualism uh, focuses on individual rights. Suprasensualism focuses on despotic will. In politics, sensualism tends to focus its ideal system as limited democracy. Suprasensualism tends to focus on totalitarianism. The first section will analyze the theories of reality and knowledge of the sensual paradigm. Sensualism. Human consciousness is neither automatic nor infallible. It needs guiding principles to help it determine truth from falsehood. Our body does not guarantee perfect health therefore medicine, is necessary. Similarly, our minds do not guarantee infallibility, therefore philosophical principles are necessary. Philosophy is a set of principles and procedures designed to aid consciousness attain and maintain truth, just as medicine is a set of principles and procedures designed to aid the body attain and maintain health. The central premise of sensualist philosophy is that all processes of consciousness are subject to error, We will call this premise the Uncertainty Principle. The Uncertainty Principle contains two premises. The first is that error occurs, and the second is that error may be detected by comparing it with some external standard of accuracy. To continue the medical analogy, we know that illness occurs because there is a deviation from an external standard called health. Philosophically, the concept of error requires the concept of accuracy. If our minds never erred, or always erred, or had no capacity to tell truth from error, we would have no need of philosophy. The uncertainty principle thus holds the implicit premise that error is always possible, but can be perceived and corrected by some objective methodology. In the sensualist position, the discipline of philosophy is directly analogous to the discipline of medicine. We know that the body is ill by comparing it to a standard of functioning, or the purpose of the body. The purpose of the body is physical survival. We know that it is unwell when it fails to fulfill its purpose. Similarly, our minds may err, but we know that we err by contrasting our thoughts with a standard of functioning, or the purpose of the mind. According to sensualism, the purpose of the mind is to aid the survival of the body. Thus, it errs when it fails to fulfill its purpose. How does sensualism know that the purpose of the mind is to aid the survival of the body? The sensualist approach to life is that consciousness is a physical process, an effect of the physical brain. Being physical, the mind cannot survive without the body. Being alive, it wishes to survive, thus aiding the survival of the body is its highest standard of functioning. Human life, of course, is a choice. We need not live. Yet, if we desire life, we have chosen a value, a preference for life, over an opposite value, a preference for death. In the sensualist paradigm, the attainment of the value of life requires specific choices and actions, i.e. one cannot choose to eat sand or drink sunlight. No action is required if our choice is death, we need only sit and starve. If we choose life, however, specific actions are required. The purpose of philosophy is to determine the best methods by which life may be secured and maintained, just as the purpose of medicine is to determine the best methods by which health may be secured and maintained. Philosophy, to detect and correct error, must recognize a hierarchy of values. The first and highest value of sensual philosophy is the existence of human life, for without human life no values can exist. The syllogistic expression of this is 1. Philosophy requires values. 2. Values cannot exist without consciousness. 3. Consciousness requires life. For, therefore, the highest value of philosophy is the existence of life. Now, life is a process, for all its operations involve time. Thus, the values of philosophy must be those processes which aid the continued success of life, just as the values of medicine must be those processes which aid the continued success of the body. For medicine, the sum purpose of those values is health. For philosophy, they are truth. Alta stopped reading. The text went on for many more pages. But he felt an odd, ugly rage in his bowels, that arrogant little shit scribbling away in his attic. He resisted an urge to crumple the paper up and hurl it from him. He felt all the irrational anger of a childish man with a sunburn. For some reason he saw his son's face turning up to him some years past, his face aglow with the pleasure of having tied his shoelaces for the first time. He took a deep breath from the graveyard of the Enlightenment straight to my desk. What time machine does this boy think he's riding? The age of reason is past! There was something creepy about this document, something woeful, dark, depressing. To argue this strenuously, for certainty, This is a thin twine around a dissolving mind. Gordon's yearning, vulnerable face seemed to flicker before him, and another wave of anger slammed into him.
1: "'Please, Mr. Professor, please let me do it!'
0: "'How on earth can I present this with a serious face?' thought Alder, imagining a chortling group of his peers. "'This boy's approach needs a little seasoning, to say the least, Alder. How could you have encouraged him? It was most cruel. Of course, we could always broadcast the final email. Newsflash! All problems of philosophy solved. All uncertainty laid to rest. All obscurity brought wriggling into the light. Put down your pens and go home. Alda laughed out loud, startling himself. He stared at the paper fighting a violent desire to crumple it. The number of logical leaps are astounding. And even if the reasoning were airtight, it's just Western prejudice. Show this to a Muslim iman, you've got a holy war. He thought of Salman Rushdie and shuddered. Then he frowned. Why should religion come into it? Alder shook his head and swiveled his chair. Outside the window, beyond the ripples of old glass and black window frames, a game of hacky sack was going on in the quad. Everyone dropped it as normal. Students sat on the steps, sunning themselves. One pale girl rooted in her knapsack, searching for the tinny song of her phone. Something skittered around the edge of his consciousness. There was... Something terribly invasive about Gordon's thesis, something imperious and arrogant and scattering. Fascist. To have this idea come through you, and then to hurl it in the face of others. This is the kind of idea that should be contained, like radium sealed in a skull's leaden tomb, then taken to the grave to spare a skittish world. His phone rang. He jumped, then picked it up. Alder, it's Bez," said the head of his department. A short... "'bald Iranian man with bushy eyebrows, "'twinkling eyes in a manner of almost pure liquid warmth. "'How are you? Good. Got a couple of minutes?' "'Sure, I'll come by. Bring a Danish.' "'Alter went to the cafeteria, got a Danish, two coffees, and went by Bez's office. "'As he approached, a young woman was leaving, "'dabbing at her eyes. "'Bez was a gentle, humane, understanding man. "'His office could generally be found "'by the trail of relieved tears radiating from it. Alder knocked. Bez stood and waved his hand. "'Poor girl,' said Bez, sitting down. "'Listen to this and tell me what you would do. "'This girl has not been coming to my class. "'She failed her midterm, and then I asked her to come see me. "'She was in tears, a lot of family problems, "'and so I say, all right, all right, you can make it up in the final. "'Final comes, she doesn't show up. "'I call her three days later, when I'm doing the marks, "'and she's crying and says that she's just had a baby.' "'Oh, you, you, you didn't notice?' "'Sure, she was heavier, but she didn't come to many classes and and sat in the back.' "'So what did you do?' "'Well, this is the thorny part. I I said, "'Look, my dear, I have to fail you. And she says, "'My baby is not well, and if I fail your class, I lose my student status, "'and I'll be shipped back home, and my child will not be taken care of properly.' "'Hmm. Tricky.' "'Alta's gaze was distant. "'Are are you all right?' "'Alta shuddered slightly. "'Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, sorry. Taken care of properly.' So we go through the options. She's estranged from her family, no father in sight, no other means of support. It all comes down to my decision. She could have told you before the exam that she was pregnant, made arrangements. Of course, of course. The, the baby was not premature, she knew. There's no doubt she's being irresponsible, but the baby's health is at stake, and, it, and it's certainly not his fault. But if you aid her irresponsibility, you only encourage her. Yes, yeah, I know. Alder paused. I would fail her. Bez leaned forward, his eyes gleaming with curiosity. Why? Well, she failed to make proactive arrangements several times. She skipped a lot of classes, failed her midterm, missed the final, and never came to you. She only responded when you told her she had failed. So you think that if she is punished, she will change? It doesn't have anything to do with that, if you'll excuse me, said Alder, thinking, is this some kind of test? As far as marks go, the only real question is what was her academic performance— Baby, no baby, alien, abduction, it doesn't matter. You can only assign marks on academics. Bez smiled ruefully. My wife says the same thing. So does my sister. They don't seem to like this girl. And what do you think? It's a tough one. The baby will suffer. I don't know how much. If the baby is even ill, added Alder. Bez paused. Yes, I i never thought of that. He looked up quickly. I suppose there, there is a baby. It would be too audacious if there weren't said Alder. Let's say there is. Life is worth more than ideas, I think. I gave her a K. Incomplete. No credit. No fail, either. Alder nodded. That's a it's a good compromise, I think. It's the best I could come up with. Who knows what kind of past this girl has. You are a humanist poster boy, smiled Alder. I try. Now, Alder, the reason I actually asked you here was for the Danish. And to tell you that Cat Larry has died. Alder's eyes widened. Yes, said Bess, but for real, this time. Cat Larry was a professor of philosophy who had been legally dead eight times. He had been raised in a commune in the 50s and had done campus drugs in the 60s and had OD'd twice in the 70s. Then his liver had started to fail due to hepatitis. Then his spine had collapsed and during neck surgery he had flatlined under anesthesia. A year afterwards he had been... Struck by a stroke and had gone under once again. After a slow recovery, he had been struck by lightning on a sabbatical and had gone to greet his relatives yet again. Then he had developed some stealthy form of diabetes and left again. Then it was rumored a suicide attempt, then another stroke. Cat Larry had started life with a restless, somewhat random intellect, and the constant exposure of his neurons to the white light of a possible afterlife had not exactly settled his reasoning. His classes had become more and more like the cheap Let-me-take-you-on-a-journey seminars held in motel rooms by quack psychics. How? asked Alder, feeling an odd thrill, when he remembered that Cat Larry always believed that after his last, quote, death, he he had only one more. Jumped to avoid a bus, was hit by a bicyclist, then fell down a manhole. They sat silent for a moment, both thinking that— If the universe really wants to get rid of you, it can be very creative. That's very sad, said Alder. Bez smiled. I only hope that when I go, the story is as good. I'll do a lot for a good story. He should have retired years ago, but I think the change would have futzed his mind too much. I don't think he'd have ever been able to find his office again if we'd moved it. Is that why he was still in the psych wing? Yes, and and the psych students liked him. Good material. I never knew him very well. "'The point is, of course, that a position is opening up, and, "'and I want to be perfectly frank. "'I think that you can do good work, and, "'and that if you loosened up a bit you could be a good teacher, "'but I don't really know.' "'Bez laughed. "'Well, well, there's, there's no way to, to say it without sounding odd.' "'He raised his head and gazed straight at Alder. "'I don't know how deep your heart is.' "'Alder blinked. "'My, my heart?' "'Being a student is all about the head.' said Bez. These are extremely unreconstituted opinions, I know, but they're real nonetheless. To go from student to teacher requires that you widen your heart, not just your head. Is that why you asked me about the pregnant solution? Alda wondered, but held his tongue. There are two reasons for that, continued Bez. First of all, you, you have to be able to judge students very closely. If they're not doing well, they, they might be shirking, or, or confused, or, or not so bright, or in the wrong program or pursuing the wrong topic, or not well, either in body or mind, or in love, or recently out of love, or, or a thousand other things. Of course, that doesn't matter as far as Marx go, but to lure people into the life of the mind, which we as a society need so desperately, you have to find and remove the real obstacles. Bez paused. Uh, no, sorry, I didn't put that very well. To judge someone, you have to feel them with all your heart. Th- that's point one. Point two is that I believe that philosophy really operates below consciousness. At its root, it's physical, not intellectual or abstract. You look skeptical. <laughs> That's all right. Do you mind if I perform a little experiment? No, of course not. I saw the babblefish do this once. Have you ever met him? Alda shook his head. Heard of him. An amazing young man, but, but too much instinct, too little reason. No. No, perhaps that is for later. Bez looked down, frowning, then lifted his head. And gazed straight at Alder. All oh, right, I- I've read a good deal of your work, and there is some passion in it, but it's all about the past, not the future. Uh, uh-huh. Go on. You come from an unintellectual family, and social circle, as far as I can tell. You, you have ability, but you're trying to prove that the life of the mind is worthwhile, which also means that you believe that it is not worthwhile. "'So you expend enormous amounts of effort producing work that is very hard to understand. "'You work because you believe ideas are worthwhile. "'You obscure because you believe they are a complete waste of time.' Alda blinked. "'I see. "'Now, if you were to find your heart—' <laughs> "'Doesn't this sound like Oz? "'Then you would find what is clear and productive for you, "'and you would be a good teacher because you would understand your students.' Alda stared at Bez, then shuddered slightly.' So, if I want Cat Larry's job, I have to find my heart." Bez nodded. Quaint, isn't it? But how will you know? Because I have found mine, smiled Bez, tearing off a piece of Danish and holding it up. Want a bite?